It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 21st of June. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, Sinn Féin used its private members' time in the Dáil to highlight the cost of education. Its education spokesperson, Sorka Clark, tabled a motion calling on the government to cancel the planned increases for third-level student contributions and to also expand the free school book grant scheme. Primary and post-primary education in this state is intended to be free under constitution and legislation, but the reality is profoundly different. The results of this are parents scrimping, saving, cutting back on everyday essential items and students losing out and being excluded. The OECD Education at a Glance report last October stated clearly that Ireland lags way behind when it comes to investing in education as a measure of GDP. That is beyond shameful and it is an issue that is raised with me time and time again by all stakeholders in education that I engage with. The idea that education is free in this country, Sinn Féin says, is a myth. I know that the return to school in September can bring about a particular pressure, especially as many parents and guardians highlight to me when a family is preparing to send more than one child back to school or indeed college. That's the Minister for Education, Norma Foley. So what about that question? Is education free for children up until they finish post-primary school? It is our ambition in government to support a child through every milestone, to support families as they journey together. Norma Foley. As you've been hearing, Sinn Féin is asking the government to cancel the planned increase in student contributions. I hope that the passion that I hear from the opposition party in relation to reducing student fees, I hope that that passion delivered here in Dáil Éireann will also be passion that you will deliver in the north of this country. That's the Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, responding to Sinn Féin's criticism of the cost of education here by criticising Sinn Féin because of the cost of education in Northern Ireland. Later this summer, we'll publish a cost of education paper for college and this will outline all of the options available for, to government so that government, opposition, students, the media, parents, everyone has an opportunity to scrutinise what you could do in a budget and what the different choices would be and what they would cost. Simon Harris. 
Harris, the Minister for Higher Education there. Now let's speak uh, to Sorka Clark, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education who tabled this motion yesterday. Good morning to you, Sorka Clark. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Perhaps uh, we can start uh, with uh, primary and post-primary education. Uh, Minister Norma Foley uh, outlined uh, uh, quite a lot that the government is doing in terms of supporting the family. Do you believe that more can or should be done? Good morning, Michael, and to your listeners also. I believe the government can be doing more, but I also believe that they should be doing more. If you were to listen only to Simon Harris in that clip that you paid there, you'd swear Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are only in the door a wet week. They are not. And what we have at the moment is a very serious um, situation. And parents are saying to me, and it's not just parents, it's teachers, Michael, it's principals who are saying this. It's the unions that are saying this. But I'm going to quote a very specific part from a report that was published just last month by St. Vincent de Paul. And it says the research demonstrates the weight of the economic and mental burden on parents being forced into difficult situations when sending their child or children back to school. Mm. This is having a hugely detrimental impact across the country. 87% of the survey responders to that stated that they had had to cut back or delay spending on other areas of the family budget, including food, energy and domestic bills, medical appointments and medication. That is the level of investment, or that's the gap of investment that's there at the moment in education. And it is not the fault of the schools, and I want to say this very clearly. The responsibility for funding our education system lies with government. The implementation of policy lies with the Department of Education, but the funding lies with government. And schools themselves are being put in a very difficult situation. The capitation grants that they're receiving simply, it, it's not even back to where it was post-economic or pre-economic crisis. OK, but it's increased by €90 million. Euro. It has increased by 19. Uh, and this is the money that the government gives to the schools to yes. turn on the lights, to pay for the exactly. heating uh, and so yes. on, which schools yes. quite often say uh, isn't uh, enough. And they ask yes. for voluntary contributions from parents the and there's no choice in volunteering the money yes. over. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So there's also what we need to speak of. Is this. Like this is a capitation grants is one issue. The ICT grants is another issue. The summer work scheme is another issue when it comes to schools. So the, the fault here isn't with your local school principal. The fault here is with government and government mm. needs to step up to the mark. If they don't want to listen to us in Sinn Féin, and they didn't oppose their motion last night, but not opposing a motion and actually taking it on board are very different things. There is a slew of research out there from various different bodies who have spent time speaking with parents, with teachers, with principals around this gap of funding that exists in education. The Department of Education mm. cannot tell you or I today the amount of money that's taken in through voluntary contributions because they simply do not ask. But there should be no obligatory contributions. The minister made that very clear to you in the Dáil again last night, quoting Section 64 of the Education Act, and that if parents are asked for a contribution, she said, it should be made clear to them that they don't have to pay it, that it is voluntarily paid if they do pay. Okay, so let's just extrapolate that for a little minute of what exactly voluntary contributions and a parent not being in a position to pay that voluntary contribution looks like for the child. We know, and this has been documented in the past, that children have actually been called out in the classroom for that voluntary contribution not have been paid. We know in some circumstances, now they are limited, but they are there, that children's names have been rolled actually up on the board of those who haven't paid. We know, and this will be quite common, the mm. refusal of a journal, the refusal of a locker. 
mm. or key to a locker. So that's putting the responsibility okay. for the family's financial circumstances onto a child. And it's calling out a child because of the family's inability. Okay, but, to pay. That's wrong. but, but shouldn't parents uh, complain to the Department of Education if something like that happens? Oh, absolutely. I yeah, absolutely uh, agree well, with you. And, and what, what happens if they do? Well, that's, that's a very good question. In some cases that I know of personally, the department will actually be very proactive. Yeah. In other cases, the parent will be simply told it's an issue between you and the school. So there isn't actually even any support there. For the okay, but this is a matter, matter of law. Uh, I mean, you cannot oblige parents to pay money to help run the school. Uh, they are asking for voluntary contributions is one thing, but by law, uh, that's all you can do. Uh, you cannot oblige parents to pay over like that. Well, that's exactly what I said last night in the Dáil, Michael, in theory, in that wonderful place called theory, we have free education, but in the constitution and legislation, but in reality, where the rest of us operate, that is not the case. And I want to quote you one other, one other, one other piece from that St. Vincent de Paul report, mm. and it says, me and my husband cut back on food for ourselves, even though we're both diabetics, just to pay. It's to put, the, it's put on the blackboard who's paid and who's not, so other kids can see which I think it's not fair. Oh, well, that's dreadful. Um, it is absolutely dreadful. But again, the responsibility for this lies with government. It doesn't mm. lie with the local school. And as I said, even last night, last Friday, I stood in a this, in this schoolyard in the southeast of the country where the footpath within the school grounds was so bad that it is actually a slipper to a hazard now at this point for the teachers and the students in that school because of the lack of investment into the summer works programs principals are determined to deliver the best education that mm. they can for the kids who go to their school the parents want to see the best education delivered in schools also mm. but the government here has a responsibility to start bridging those gaps the, of that front and that is that, that gap in front and that exists in schools is that 90 is million short is that 90 million short? How much should it be? Uh, I mean, uh, I think the minister uh, accepted uh, that there was a, a shortfall. She said that uh, the capitation grants and ancillary payments have been increasing over in recent years and this year by 90 million. Is that not enough? No, it is. It's not enough. And if you look at the INTO report that came out there a number of weeks ago, if we were to reduce class sizes by two points, which would bring us very much in line with our European counterparts, the cost for that alone is 41 million on a full year basis. Mm. If we were to look then at introducing mental health supports for children in our school, that's, that's 20 euro per pupil per year. Mm. But the overall, the increased funding for schools is well in excess of, of 20% baseline. That's what's actually needed. And that's before you get into the other funding streams that mm. exist there for schools. So your ICT grants, your exceptional works programme, the um, your, your summer works or your uh, summer works programmes, as I've said. But the asks of teachers and the asks of principals here aren't simply f- to make their own working environment better. But the pupil teacher ratio is better. the lowest it's ever been, according to the minister. Well, now, if you're starting from a very high point to say it's the lowest that it's ever been is mm. a good start, but it's not the finish line. OK. Uh, she also made the point that 588,000 pupils in 3,230 primary schools, including 130 special schools, are, are going to get free school books this year. The, the, the school book grant is capped at €96 Euro per pupil per school. Now, if you have a school that has been operating a book rental scheme for the last number of years, they may just make it out of €96. If you have a school that's never operated a book rental scheme, that school's simply not going to deliver that. Now, I'm not the only parent who has received the email from the school saying, listen, we'll do what we can with this, but we're really not going to get everything that we need for €96. Those letters have been coming out to parents already. How much do they need? I'm sorry, but, you know, um, for those... The Irish League of Credit Unions had estimated it to be more in the line of €110 per pupil. 
Okay. And that's for primary. Now, remember, primary school books is actually substantially cheaper than post-primary school books. Mm. So, so, so you're 14 euros short. 14 euros per pupil mm. short. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, the larger the school, the, the larger the gap that is going yeah. to exist there. But again, to go back to the need to extend that program into post-primary schools, where the largest cost for, for any child starting in first year or fifth year is actually the school books outside of school uniforms. Now, we had introduced a bill around school uniforms as well mm. that the government didn't support, but that's a separate issue. So while a step has been made, and I do recognise that step has been made mm. in the delivery of school books, for primary school that needs to be extended to post-primary school and what Simon Harris didn't mention last night in the Dáil is that free school books have been in place in the north since 1947. This is not a novel idea it's something that's actually quite common in other countries. They and the, where mm. family But student fees he was saying have been increasing. Sorry say that to me again Stu- Michael. Students fees have been increasing. In the north. In the north, yeah. Where you were referring to. What he also didn't mention in the north is that Stormont isn't sitting to be able to have a functioning assembly to address these issues. But again, that's a side point. And I go back to the barriers of education. Where a family are not in a position to be able to fund school books for a child going into post-primary, that child cannot actively engage with the curriculum. If that child is reliant on borrowing one of books, say from a sibling or from a neighbour or from a friend, that child is not learning. Or that's where Vincent de Paul comes in quite often, isn't it? It is where St. Vincent comes in. And I do I want to make something very clear yeah. um, to your listeners here, Michael. If if there is anybody sitting at home and they're looking at their income and they're looking at the letters coming in from the school for whatever whatever costs it may be that's been mm. that's been asked of them, please reach out to St. Vincent Paul. They are there to help. They will do whatever it is within their power to do. But please reach out as soon as possible. Don't wait until two weeks before the kids are due to go back to school. So don't put it off. Don't put it on the long finger. Mm. It is difficult. Okay, but 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 uh, in terms of affordability, don't you have to take everything in the round? Um, there's been a boost for parents with uh, an increase in child benefit. Uh, that additional payment, two hundred thousand children, the minister said, are going to get a, a free school. The cost of transport is uh, greatly reduced. A cap now of one hundred and twenty-five instead of five hundred and twenty-five per pupil. Uh, and uh, I- indeed, um, the minister has also uh, been talking uh, about um, the uh, contributions uh, and that she is making the point that parents, and she's spelt it out clearly, that parents shouldn't pay it if they're told that they have to pay it. Let's look at this in the round, as you say here. Parents are now operating in an environment where massive cost in mortgages, rent has gone through the roof, utilities have gone through the roof, transport, food everything is increasing. Now, any, any help towards that is absolutely welcome. But I want to take up the point you mentioned there about school transport. And I heard the Minister refer to this as being successful last year. And I did deliberately use the term, there is an element of amnesia after sitting in with the government if they think that last year's school transport system was a success. Now, there is not a county councillor or a TD in this state whose phone did not start hopping when the Minister announced an idea of making school transport free and the world and its mother thought this is wonderful we can really benefit from this and demand rapidly shot up but no supply shot up in 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 line with that demand the, we had the ludicrous situation of over 130,000 
um, applications within a very short period of time. The demand for school transport has never been met by, by, by government, ever. They've never even come near the demand that's there for it. That is fundamentally wrong when we're talking about cutting carbon emissions and increasing um, or, or decreasing our carbon emissions that's there. The, there needs to be a better, much more thought-out way of approaching singularly the school transport issue. We had a situation, I know certainly in my own town last year, where two siblings, one got a ticket and one didn't. Neither of them were concessionary students. That's not right. That's wrong. So when the government are announcing ideas, they need to back it up with a plan, they need to back it up with a supply, and they need to back it up with resourcing. Mm. Critically. Okay. What about that point we heard uh, Simon Harris, uh, the Minister for Higher Education, make uh, about uh, the cost of education uh, being outlined for students going to college in a a paper that uh, the government will publish uh, this summer? That sounds like a a good idea, does it not? It would have been an even better idea if they had done it at the start of the school term last year when the cost of living was really starting to bite. No, I do welcome it. It is a positive step forward. But as in most things with the Minister for Higher Education, it's a dollar short and a day late. Then students can tell you the cost of education. Their parents can tell you the cost of education, particularly around the cost of accommodation for third level students who are who are seeking to go to education facilities outside their, of their local area. It is phenomenal. It's actually why one of the one cohort of students will choose to study up north because the accommodation costs are so much less there than what they are down here. Mm. It is a phenomenal barrier. There's also certain little tweaks that need to be made around the SUSE service. Now, the, the SUSE is a wonderful service and the people who work there are wonderful people, but they are operating within an environment that there does need to be certain tweaks made. The adjacent and non-adjacent rate was, was addressed somewhat last year, but there is an issue that exists there around students who may not be renting an entire property they may be renting a room and therefore are licensees and they wouldn't have utility bills in their own name because it's included mm. in the rent there's the issues like that are real barriers and they may not be big barriers in and of themselves but if you have three or four of them what results at the end of this is a student saying you know i just simply can't do this mm. and then they make an alternative option which may not have been their force and may not in the long term yeah. actually be in their best interest mm. or spend four five six hours commuting a day yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, no way for anybody to live uh, but um, that is uh, the situation I suppose in the middle of a, a housing crisis uh, as you say the government uh, isn't opposing your motion but I, I take it that's more or less where that conversation ends in terms of uh, this uh, dull discussion I would be surprised, Michael, to be honest, if this is the end of the discussion. This, this issue isn't one that's going to go away. It is one that's going to be spoke about at every kitchen table across the country for the remainder of the summer, right back until the children go into school again come September and our, and our young people go back mm. to third level. It is certainly one that's going to be um, very much under discussion in the run-up to the budget. Mm. The, and what it is that government are proposing to do about meeting those costs the um, particularly that student level con- or that third level contribution that that is going to be very contentious. I know the students, the student unions themselves, have been very vocal on these issues, and I don't think they have any intention of letting this disappear off the agenda. Okay, but it's not going to result in any change. Probably a better way of putting it. Not as of, as of last night. It won't even go for vote to this evening because the government didn't oppose the motion. But as I said, opposing and taking on board the content of it are two different things. Okay, the only thing you. that means is that it won't go for a vote. OK, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sorka Clark is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education. Now, if you are in Ratoth, uh, perhaps uh, you're fed up with the water situation. Taoiseach, 
In the 26 days since um, the 26th of May, people in Ratoth have been without water or on water restrictions for 13 days uh, because of at least three separate water bursts. Um, this caused massive disruption for households and for businesses. Businesses are forced to close or go on restricted capacity. One business, uh, uh, instead of needing 20 staff, just needed six staff. Um, there is an investment plan um, on, on two separate levels, but with the frequency of out outages, it's hugely frustrating for, for people, um, and the lack of communication is even more frustrating. So will you support the call from the community for a dedicated response and community liaison team within Ishka Aaron to manage this period of works? That's uh, Sinn Féin TD and me, the Eastern work putting those points to the Taoiseach. Thanks, um, thanks Deputy. Uh, yeah, just very, very sorry to hear about the disruption that people in Rathaud have faced. And the Taoiseach uh, said uh, he'll take up uh, on uh, the information given to him. What I'll do is I, I'll, um, I, I'll certainly check in with Irish Water and, and see, if, uh, see if that can be done. I, I don't want to make a commitment in the middle of the house here today, but um, I, I think it's, it's a reasonable ask and uh, we'll make some inquiries. All right, that's the Taoiseach Leo Radker. Uh, I imagine people in Matoth uh, are hoping that will lead uh, to some positive change. Uh, when it comes to student contributions, somebody texting saying it, it does lie with the school, especially when it's the schools who are forcing parents to pay up. Uh, any local parents, if this happens to them, they should be contacting you, Michael, and then you should be naming and shaming the schools. The law is the law, says our, our caller. Uh, WhatsApp message uh, then from somebody who says, My my daughter is in Greenhills and every few days I get a text and an email saying next year's fees are overdue and this started before this year ended. She's doing TY and they want 275 now and another payment before she starts in September. I just can't afford it. Not on top of the uniforms. Uh, I was late last year and she couldn't get a locker until it was paid in full. Well, on uh, the suggestion of uh, the last caller, uh, we'll contact uh, the school uh, on your behalf half and ask for a response to that. Is it a case that you pay or you don't get a, a locker. Uh, and we'll uh, bring that response to you. That's assuming that we get one. But thank you indeed for making the point. 0419832000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you know, there's a concern about 11 jobs at rehab enterprises in Navin. Uh, and rehab has issued us with a statement in relation uh, to those jobs that we heard yesterday are to finish up on the 18th of August. They say that they met with SIPTU recently and presented SIPTU with a proposal for discussion and consultation to help create a sustainable way forward. Uh, they say that they're trying to protect the remaining jobs in the commercial enterprise uh, that rehab is, and uh, they refer to rehab as a commercial enterprise on a couple of occasions. They say that if employees are impacted, that they'll be supported in every way possible by rehab. But they say that the consultation with SIPTU is currently ongoing. Robbie Purfield is SIPTU industrial organiser and on the line. Robbie, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, the statement we received from rehab uh, is conflicting with... Uh, the uh, information we heard yesterday from uh, one of the employee's sisters that they've been told that their last day of work will be the 18th of August. Yes, good, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, I, I suppose te- technically there is an element of truth within the within the, the statement that you are given in that the 
consultation process uh, we, that we entered into is due to finish up tomorrow. However, we had a final consultation meeting with them on Monday and in terms of the consultation, we can't seem to find a way forward in terms of exploring alternatives for the site and alternatives for the workers. So at that meeting, and we had communicated back to members after we met, they had given us an, an indication that a, a final date will be August 18th as it stands at the moment if we enter into a redundancy process. Mm. We have record employment in the country and people might be wondering, uh, you know, why... Uh, is there such concern about uh, 11 jobs? But these are, are, are 11 special people uh, and they won't find employment as easily as uh, the rest of the population. Uh, a lot of uh, the people working with rehab have intellectual disabilities themselves. Yes, so the, the, the workforce and rehab enterprise in general, Michael, that, that our membership across six sites across the country, the majority of them would, would be workers with, with some form of, of either a mental or physical disability. Now, there, there is people there that, that wouldn't have disabilities to work alongside them. Like, there would be logistics mm. plants. Some of the other sites would be logistics plants. So you'd have truck drivers, or you would have supervisors and Navin and so on. But the, the majority of workers will be um, to, to have disabilities of some description. Um, so, yeah, it, it, look, it, it's not, I suppose, your normal company. You know, we're, we're not sitting here talking about a company that's existing to, to serve the shareholders in, in effect and I've seen it not just in Navin but across the country that the, the workers see it nearly as a social outlet for them as much as actually going in and, mm. and collecting a day's pay for a day's work and in some instances Michael that is the case that I suppose that their only social outlet is the job and it's look it's been a long process in general we have yeah. been speaking to them over the last few months around a, a restructure in general, around enterprises, um, they, they have, well, Rehab Group is a charity. The way they have it set up, Rehab Enterprises is a commercial entity and, and, and effectively considered a private company. So it's treated slightly differently to the rest of the group. And look, we, we've seen facts and figures from them over a period of time, and it is loss making, but mm. equally, it shouldn't be one that's there to make millions. It should be one that's there to kind of wash its face and keep people in employment that deserve to, to get out and about and, and be employed and have a bit of independence in their life. And the job losses uh, in, in Avon are going to be replicated around the country, are they? Not to the same extent. There, 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 may, there may be some other on a, on a more individual basis around the country, but some of that may come from where people will say retire or, 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 or resign or whatever case mm. may be. There, there may be another handful, but this is, at the moment, um, Navin is the, is the only site that, that's been slated for this consultation process for closure. Okay, Talma Tui, who wrote to us, uh, said that the anxiety, the levels of anxiety are through the roof uh, at this stage, and you can understand that. She said that her sister and the people she works with don't care about redundancy or any of these other things that you'd normally be talking about uh, when you're looking at, at layoffs. Uh, but what they want to do is go to work. Uh, would that be uh, your read of it? Yes, hundred percent. Um, that that's completely accurate. We we've met with the workers on, on a number of occasions um, to to keep them updated and, and, and keep them abreast of, of what's been mm. happening. And it, it is it, it like I said, it, it's it's the independence and the social outlet that it gives them. So it, it would certainly, to to my mind, when we've met them, it's it's not about 
taking and taking a big lump of a redundancy and, and, and going elsewhere. It's very much that they're working with friends and colleagues that they, they, they respect and get on with uh, and they uh, want to keep uh, that going. And she wanted to know, why, why, why is business so bad that they've got to this stage? Uh, as you say, Rehab Enterprises is a commercial company. Uh, but she's asking, what do they do themselves to boost their sales? Have they got sales reps? Have they got marketing? Or do they rely on people coming in and returning with business to them? No, so in, in, in the case of, of, of Mavin, and, and, and this is what's come through the, the meetings of the company, Mavin is the only site of the six that they have that, that manufacture something. The rest of them are all um, recycling our logistics sites, so, you know, delivering stuff are, are, are taking in paper for shredding and, and so on. Whereas in Mavin, they, they manufacture uh, PPE and they have one particular client. Now, like a lot of things during the pandemic, that was one thing that took off and, and, and everyone wanted to the protective suits that they manufacture. But what the company have been telling us is that the, the scale of the work isn't enough to make the, the site viable. Effectively, what they're saying is while people are busy, while the, while the 11 people there are busy and working away, it, it's the scale and, and working to scale is what's affecting them. So they, they have been looking for business. We have spoke to them about even looking at reshaping the site and maybe moving into logistics and retraining people and, and, and keeping them in that type of work. But it, it just doesn't seem to be a runner for the company that they, they, they focused on the loss-making aspect of the site and that's where they found in on. Right. Uh, so you believe uh, that uh, on the 18th of August uh, people will finish up? Yeah, no, look, we, we have a whole process to go through. We, we've we announced an issue, Michael, where they, they closed the Limerick site about just over two years ago in March 2021. And we have a collectively agreed redundancy with them. And we've been through a number of labour court hearings, three in total. And we've gone through financial exercises with financial experts because when they closed the site in Limerick, they didn't pay out the um, fully agreed redundancy amount they paid out effectively statutory plus two weeks for cap of the year salary so we're, we're currently still trying to resolve that issue mm. um, so we, we have a long road to go but certainly you know the, the focus the focus for ourselves on our members and, and you know doing the best for the members that are on site there and having Okay Robbie thank you indeed uh, for thank joining you. us Thanks very much, Robbie, Robbie, thank, you. thank you Robbie Perfield SIP2 uh, Industrial Organiser uh, and our, our thanks as well to Thelma for the emails uh, that we've received uh, from you Thelma uh, over the last few days now if you want to make comment as always we'd love to hear from you 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie and we'll be talking about more layoffs in Navin uh, not uh, uh, at, uh, Rehab Enterprises after the break, but at Tara Mines. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Leiden was in intensive uh, talks. That's how the talks were described at least over the last couple of days with trade unions representing workers at Tara Mines. Uh, the hope has been that something can be done to avert the planned layoff of 650 workers when the mine is placed under care and maintenance. John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser, joins us once again. Good morning, John, and thanks as always for taking the time to speak uh, to us and our, our listeners. Uh, what can you tell us about the talks? Well, look, it uh, obviously was over the two days that um, was set aside for it, Monday and Tuesday, and we ended up running into Wednesday as well, uh, part of Wednesday with us, obviously, today. And there is... Um, 
a detailed document has been uh, passed over to the company um, from all the unions and we've asked them to give us serious consideration. We don't want a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, we want a, a thought-out, uh, fully uh, valued um, estimate of our proposals by the company and uh, whatever time they need to do that is what we uh, have uh, left them with. We're available Whenever they want to talk to us, we can meet to clarify issues if they uh, needed that. And um, local shop stewards are also available uh, to the company on a daily basis on the site. So um, we'll just have to wait and see what the company is making of it. And uh, it may be this week, they may be back to us um, before Friday or even over the weekend um, or early next week. Right, and the company is losing money apparently hand over fist. I take it the proposals are, are proposals at saving money, at reducing costs. Yeah, we've we've looked at it uh, uh, short term, immediate, or sorry, immediate term, short term, uh, and long term. The proposals are you know very detailed over um, you know going into the future because there's no quick fix here. Um, but there's value in looking at the whole operation of the mine, which we have done, and the proposals are reflective of that. Uh, and we've asked the company to um, do their evaluation based on short-term, short medium-term and long-term. Right. Uh, I'm curious as to why you're making long-term proposals. Uh, do you believe that the company will have to be restructured if it is to be viable in the long-term? Well, the long-term part of this is obviously Tara Deep, uh, it's where everybody um, that is involved in this, including the government, everybody wants to um, make sure that Tara Deep comes into operation as, at the earliest opportunity, but it is long term. Uh, there's a number of years before it can get out to the new, uh, that, that new war body. And um, by the time they get out there, uh, you know, it is long term and our proposals is to make sure we're in the best possible place for that to come into production. Right. Um, are we looking at energy costs or are we looking at uh, the cost of salaries? No, we're looking at energy costs, uh, fuel and electricity as being the big uh, tickets um, on, on the company's agenda. They have, um, you know, like every business, they have been paying enormous amounts of money because of obviously... Um, the um, Ukraine situation and while it is improving at the moment like every other business uh, the cost of energy is reducing uh, it's still substantially higher than what uh, it was pre the Ukraine war so um, yeah we're looking at that we've costed a lot of the things that we have suggested in our view uh, we can improve it enormously mm. Uh, and uh, the company, we've asked them to do their own evaluations on everything that we put forward and costings on it. So, is that, a, um, is that sorry, uh, John? Is that a, a case of reducing the amount of energy used running the mine, or a case of reducing the cost of the energy that's needed to run the mine? Does it involve grants, uh, Irish grants, or, or European grants? Well, look, we're looking at it in relation to uh, getting more efficient around usage on the site but we wouldn't rule out talking to uh, government because we have to talk to government uh, they have a role to play here and a financial role to play 
And if grants can be got, we've we've asked for all of that, uh, and we've equally looked for um, you know funding that is in the EU for different projects, such as I've mentioned on the airways before with you, um, a just transition. And we believe because Tara Mines is an extraction company, um, no different than Bordemona, other than it's underground. Um, and uh, we believe that that Just Transition Fund should be made available to the company. Okay, these are our proposals you're making, there's some of them, uh, and you're in negotiations with a company, uh, and obviously you can't negotiate with a company on, on the airwaves, uh, but what can you say to people locally, where is this at now? You've made the proposals to the company, uh, you've given us some detail, uh, what happens next? Well, uh, we're, as we say, we're, we're waiting for them to come back to us and uh, you couldn't predict what way that response would be because we've also said that we want the involvement of the parent company uh, in the response and uh, we don't know at this moment in time what that's going to do or where um, what they're able to deliver on that. So it's very hard to know at this moment in time how good or how bad the situation is um, we would always, um, I mentioned it before, we're trying to keep the glass half full uh, and keep this mine running. Uh, and that's what we intend doing, um, you know, regardless of what happens uh, and how the company respond to us. We aren't at end game. We're going to uh, do whatever we have to do. We have, uh, you know, thoughts around uh, all eventualities uh around the company's response. So, look, it's all to play for. It's all to um, hopefully come out of this without a care and maintenance situation and uh, no layoffs. Yeah, well, I think that's what everybody would like uh, and uh, time will tell. John, thank you for your time once again today and for joining us uh, with uh, that update. John Regan, SIP2 Sector Organiser. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's talk about death, who has already turned off the radio. All right, if you're still with us, let's talk about the death cafe. Uh, I think we lost a few more listeners. What? The, what, I hear some say, uh, who are still with us? The Death Cafe, I say. Uh, Kay Kearns is here with us uh, to tell us uh, about the Death Cafe and how you can go along to the Death Cafe tomorrow. Uh, good morning to you, Kay, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. If we go to the Death Cafe, do we ever come back or what is this all about? Thank you very much, Michael, for having me on. Yes, I can promise you that if you come to the Dead Cafe tomorrow evening between half seven and nine o'clock in the Arboyne Odell, you will most certainly be leaving it. And I suppose you'll be leaving it more uplifted. You will have had very enjoyable chat with some mm. like-minded people or some people that are there out of curiosity. You'll have enjoyed some good tea and coffee and cake and you'll have taken part in a discussion about why we have a resistance around what is our last rite of passage. passage. Mm. The one that we don't, we prepare the least for until we have to. Right, now that's not a, a, the response people might have expected because it sounds very morbid, the death cafe. Uh, you tell me you're part of the sacred circle and part of the death movement. That's right. Uh, now, that really does sound morbid. It's absolutely not morbid. Um, I'm linked in with a group of like-minded people who live life to the fullest. Mm. They appreciate the life that they have with an acknowledgement about the fact that we are all going to die. It's inevitable. Mm. It's the one rite of passage we don't prepare for. And as opposed to 
burying our heads in the sands and leaving it until the very last moment. If we approach our death as something that's going to happen, we can put plans in place, Mm. you know, um, we can put plans in place, we can express our wishes and our desires to the people who may be Mm. taking care of arrangements at the end of the day. What it does, Michael, is it has a life affirming aspect to all of the people that I would meet with and be in communication with. It makes us appreciate the life we have Mm. rather than lying on our deathbed or lying in a hospice or a hospital saying, I wish I had done. I wish I had spent more time with my children. I wish they Mm. won't be saying I wish I had worked more hours. I wish I had kept the floors in the house clean or, Mm. you know, it's about our priorities change as we get older. And as opposed to ignoring it, um, it's not going to come to me. We will visit it briefly when we're at somebody else's funeral. We might make one or two comments about what we would like, what way we'd like mm. to be buried or cremated, whether we'd like a church service or not, and then park it away mm. in the back of our minds until we're forced to, to, to look at it. What we do is we say, death is inevitable. Um, we're all we're all going to die at some stage. Why don't I embrace that as right. opposed to feeling fear about it? And enjoy the life I have right Mm. up until the moment when I'm not able to enjoy life anymore. Is it a little bit like the lyrics of My Way and that you get to write your own song and you can change that line regrets I've had a few. (laughs) To an extent, yes. Mm. Up to 68% of deaths occur in hospitals. Mm. So if the 47 bus is going to get me when I leave the studio in a couple of minutes, there'll be very little I can do about that. Hopefully Mm. I'll survive the accident. Maybe I won't. But in a lot of cases, we can make informed choices about what we would like. We, We seem to have pushed death into hospitals and hospices and handed over control Mm. as opposed to way back when, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, death was a community event. Um, people died in their homes. People came to the wake. They came to view the body. Mm. There was a whole ceremony around death and dying. Now, up to 68% of people die in hospitals and their death is seen as a medical failure. Mm. Um, why Why is that? We're, we all know at a level that we're going to die. So why, when, when our loved ones go into hospitals, we want to keep them alive mm. as long as possible? Who are we keeping mm. them alive for? But, but, but are, are you trying to start a conversation with people uh, along the lines of spend more time with your children if that's what you'd like to be able to say on your deathbed? Uh, write a, a will so that people know what your wishes are uh, and to prepare for death in those ways. I am. Um, I am saying that, but I'm saying so much more. I'm saying, look at the life you're living. Are there areas in it that you'd like to tweak? Mm. Are there, you know, things... So it's as much about now as it is. It's very much about now. When now comes to a stop, it could be an abrupt stop or it could be in a number of years Yes, I have my father, my best friend, loads of people put off doing the things they wanted to do until they reached retirement Mm. or until they had finished work or until the children were grown up. And unfortunately, by the time all those rites of passages occurred, Mm. they had terminal diagnosis, particularly with my best friend, particularly with my father. Uh, My mother waited 40 years for my father to retire so they could enjoy their lives. My Mm. father died two weeks after his 66th birthday. So there's a learning there for me. Don't put off Mm. living life the way you want to live it until I retire or until this happens or that happens. Do it now. Mm. And... With death 
in mind with 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 an informed view that I'm going to die. I'm not going to die today. Hopefully I'm not going to die tomorrow. Mm. So what am I going to do today and tomorrow with my life, with my time, mm. the most precious thing I have with my time mm. that gives me joy, brings or me peace. Or if I die today, because none of us know, um, would I be happy with the life I led? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. So it's a it's life affirming. Mm. It's not morbid. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, a grief therapy yeah. session or anything a, a, like that. A lot of us would feel, though, don't really have much choice in those things, you know. Uh, yeah, I'd love to retire and, uh, I don't know, uh, do a bit of gardening in the south of France or, or whatever. Uh, but I can't. I need the money. I have to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, we all have to go to work and we mm. all have to pay the electricity bill and the gas bill. But what we can do is we can make time within our time in the now to do some of the things we want to do. Yes, mm. I had somebody say to me recently, um, if I was, you know, if I knew I was dying, I'd love to go to New York, but I can't afford to go to New York. So will ye look after me going to New York? And I was saying, no, that's not what it's about. It's about you taking control of your own life. Mm. It's about you making the choices that are best for you. Not all of us can afford to go to New York. Not all of us want to go to New York. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, there might be things we can do while we're still working and paying the ESB bill that gives us joy and pleasure in our life. So that when we do come to that mm. stage where we're handing over our autonomy and that, you know, to, to mm. professionals or otherwise. Are we, are we too quick to come up with excuses, though, rather than find solutions? You know, I, very much so. I, 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 I can't play golf on a Saturday because I have to take the kids to the football match. There's a little bit of that, yeah. Mm. It's about finding a balance. Mm. It is about finding a balance. But it's, and it's about having honest conversations about what we would like to do with our lives mm. now. Um, so that when we do get the eventual knock on the door mm. or a doctor says to us, Okay, I'm sorry, I've got bad news for you. I'm not in a big rush then to do the things I wanted to do. That I can calmly and as much as mm. possible reasonably accept the fact that, yes, I am going to die. We all know it at a level, mm-hmm. but I can prepare for it then. Okay. It sounds like a, a conversation more about living or as much about living as it is about dying. Very much so. Okay. Very much so. Although- with with the end in sight. Okay. But we're not rushing to meet the end. <laughs> yeah, or maybe a little bit uh, on the horizon, <laughs> as the case may be. Uh, and you'll be talking about it at uh, the Death Cafe uh, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow uh, in uh, the Arabine Hotel. Yeah. But I won't be doing all of the talking. The people that are coming, mm. and I hope plenty of people do come to the Arabine Hotel tomorrow, they'll be doing the talking. I'll just be introducing the concept mm. and then facilitating discussions. But it'll be the people that are, are there that will be doing the talk. OK, very good. Kay, thank you indeed uh, for coming into us. That's at half past seven. Uh, you'll be there till about nine o'clock if people want to drop in. Thank you indeed. Thank indeed. you, Michael. Ardboyne Hotel. That's uh, Kay Kearns uh, who will be hosting the Death Cafe. She's a member of the Sacred Circle and uh, the death movement, but uh, promises that she's not at all morbid. Thank you indeed uh, for coming in, as I say, Kay. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government has signed off on a plan to quash the criminal records of men convicted of consensual sex, that's consensual gay sex, prior to 1993. On the 23rd of June, it will be exactly 30 years since Maura Gagan Quinn stood in the spot where I'm standing now and introduced the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Bill 1993. That bill gave effect to the requirements of the Norris Judgment and finally abolished the 19th century laws, those Victorian laws that had criminalised gay men. 
Since then, we've traveled quite a distance in how the state values its LGBT plus citizens as equals. I looked at the debates on the passage of that bill through each house. I don't think it's going to serve us to dwell on some of the more outrageous contributions, which in fairness were thankfully only minority voices at the time. However, it is worth remembering the words spoken by the then minister during her speech that day. And she said, the process of change is not easy and understandably, many people worry that traditional values which they hold so dear and many of which are fundamentally sound are under siege from emerging modern realities. But of course, it is not a matter of laying siege to all the old certainties, nor is it a matter of jettisoning sound values simply to run with the current tide of demand, which may or may not be a majority demand. It is rather a matter of looking closely at values and asking ourselves whether it is necessary or right that they be propped up for the comfort of the majority by applying discriminatory and unnecessary laws to a, to a minority, any minority. 30 years later, I stand here as a person whose pathway in life was made immeasurably better by that particular piece of legislation compared to those who went before me, many of whom felt forced to leave this country. And as I reflect on those words spoken by the then minister, I'm struck by how 30 years later, we are in many ways still involved in that process of change and how still we face misunderstanding, fear, unfounded resistance, when we seek to improve our equality laws in a way that simply makes life fairer for LGBTI plus people. That's the Minister for Equality, Roderick O'Gorman, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday when uh, the House heard statements to coincide with Pride Week. Let's uh, speak now uh, about this uh, and indeed some other issues with Porrick Rice, who's the Policy and Research Manager with LGBT Ireland. Good morning to you, Porrick, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. The Minister uh, made uh, that uh, suggestion to the government yesterday uh, along uh, with uh, legislation which will prevent or prohibit uh, conversion therapy. I think that was expected, uh, but I wasn't expecting uh, this news uh, that convictions would be quashed uh, for consensual sex that men had with men prior to 1993. Were you? Uh, yes, this is a campaign that's been, been running for a long time and there, there's a dedicated group of, of campaigners who've been calling for this for, for a very long time and I know um, going back a number of years, even the, the Labour Party had legislation on this. So it's been an, an ongoing campaign um, to kind of right the wrongs of the past. And we need to I suppose, look back at our history and and make, I think at the time we had an apology at the 25th anniversary, but I think it's time to, to formally recognise what was done to men in the past was wrong um, and those convictions need to be looked at. You know, in, in the 100 years of the state's history, for, for 70 of those years, it was a crime to be gay and people were arrested and imprisoned and harassed um, and it had a huge impact uh, on many people and, and men in particular arrested, but it affected the wider LGBT community. Um, so it, it's really an important measure and an important step forward that the state will formally look at those uh, and disregard those convictions. Um, it was a consensual act between, uh, between men, many of whom were in love, um, and who were, were targeted and arrested by the state. Um, so it's mm. a, a really it's an important it's, day for, for many older people in particular. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to um, understand it uh, in uh, today's context, uh, but that was life then. Uh, the news that uh, 
has broken uh, overnight. Uh, I, I don't know. I know that there's been campaigns for some time, um, but I, I thought it came as a bolt out of the blue. Were, were you surprised to hear that the government has decided to do this now? Um, no, because there, there has been this kind of working group uh, that has been in place by the Department of Justice for a period of time, and um, ourselves and other organisations have made submissions to that, mm. and we've been working on the kind of the detail of it, and there has been a, a kind of a very long process right. um, and consultation. So we've this was an announcement we were expecting, um, and we've been calling for it, and we've, yeah. we, we, we continue our call that, that beyond the announcement of the report, we need to see mm. kind of concrete actions, and the report does have... Um, I believe a, a range of recommendations and what we now need to see is those implemented as kind well, of a matter of urgency. That's, that's uh, all the more interesting, isn't it? Uh, what do you expect uh, this will mean uh, for men who have criminal convictions? Um, will it be looked, will their conviction be looked on retrospectively now as a miscarriage of justice? Yeah, no, I think that, that that is the way that it will be looked at and I think the, a process will have to be put in place Um and we want that to be an easy process for people uh, to engage in and, and that people aren't kind of re-traumatised through that process because many of the things people endured were, were horrendous. We heard accounts of people uh, saying that, that guards came looking in their windows. They, they came up the front gardens and were looking in their windows um, and saw them saw them with people and then they ended up being arrested. So people had endured uh, really difficult periods um, and we know that there was often like a lot of queer bashing and violence and um, where, where people would have met mm. in outdoor settings and stuff and would have been targeted. So people in the past have endured a lot of uh, kind of harassment and violence as well and this needs to be part of a kind of a healing process um, and I think mm. it will mean a lot that the state will formally say that, that, that this was wrong and that people shouldn't have been arrested uh, for consensual sex. Mm. Um, so I think it will be an important and healing it's, moment. It's not just uh, the act, uh, this uh, the, the sexual act uh, in people's lives. Um, it, it was every aspect of their life, uh, I take it, that was impacted because they had to live secret lives. 100%, yeah. They, people had to hide who they were. They couldn't be out openly at work. Um, people often describe kind of living smaller lives that they were... They were afraid that, you know, if, if maybe they went for a promotion at work and what if someone found out and it would have a bigger consequence. So they they were kind of living under the shadow of this and had a real a real effect on many people's lives. And may, may have lost their jobs uh, if they yeah. were convicted uh, uh, and so on. So if it was a miscarriage of justice, would you be expecting that there'd be a scheme of redress for that injustice? Well, I think what we want to see is a kind of wider set of measures, kind of like a restorative justice that... We acknowledge that they're wrong, but also there's there's things today that are wrong that need to be fixed. And I think for us, that's that's part of that start of justice campaign is that we need to have a wider set of measures um, that make life better for for young LGBT people today. And that for us is a real priority that that, that this is acknowledgement that things are wrong in the past, but there are still things wrong today that we need to make better. And that has to be part uh, a key part of this is this wider acknowledgement that. We can make things better for for young people. Mm. Um, well, no um, doubt it's a lot better than it was thirty years ago. Yeah, no, definitely. W- w- no, without a doubt, it's better. Yeah. Um, we've made huge progress, and I think it's it's always important to recognise uh, huge progress. Um, but we do know there are still issues. Um, we've seen hate crimes on the rise, a thirty percent increase in hate crimes in the last year, and we really need responses to that because. These issues are rooted in a legacy of homophobia that was accepted by the state. So that we can trace the kind of the, the homophobia, the violence, the harassment 
like back to back to those times when it was acceptable, it was normal part of society, and that that criminalisation leaves a long tail and has a long legacy, yeah. um, and it's still impacting us today. Well, it, was, well, it was accepted, but it was more than accepted by the state; it was promoted by the state and enforced. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and for a very long time, like we're talking into the nineteen nineties, um, it was still on the statute books. Um, so we do need to see this in a wider sense, I think, and that's why we've been we've been calling for you know, a really robust package that, that tackles hate crime, goes to the root, mm. does proper education, kind of really transforms attitudes and opinions and and, and moves us forward, I think. Um, we know internationally Ireland is ranked 16th in Europe in terms of LGBT human rights and policy protections, and we're slipping on that ranking. We had been 15th, and so there is work to be done, um, and, and we have an ambition in LGBT Ireland that this will be the best place in Europe to be LGBT. We want to see Ireland get to the top of that ranking, and that's the kind of work that we're really focused on is is moving us up that scale. Um, and part of that is the, the the new announcement that there's going to be uh, a ban on conversion practices, um, and we also need to see enhancements around around family rights. There are still remaining issues after the marriage equality referendum where there still is laws that mean that people aren't, uh, families aren't fully recognised. There, there, there are families in this country where both parents aren't recognised, even though they they have crazy kids together, both same-sex parents still aren't parents to their kids. Um, we're still, there's still issues around surrogacy and there's mm. intersex rights. There's, there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done to make this an even better place uh, to be LGBT. Talk to um, us about conversion therapy for a, a, a moment. This is a, a pseudoscience, isn't it? Uh, where a, a quack purporting to be a psychologist uh, of some sort tries to convince somebody that they're not actually gay. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's it. In short, it's, it's it's this kind of idea that that you can change somebody's sexual orientation um, through kind of therapeutic measures. Um, and we know it, it does real damage to people um, who are subjected to it. There was a, a really detailed report produced by Trinity College this year, and it really went into the harms of, of people described as kind of a devastating, destructive um, impact it had on them, leaving people with trauma. Mm. Um, so it really needs to be. Um, really needs to be outlawed because um, uh, we know that it, it doesn't work and it leads to these really poor outcomes, you know. Uh, and it, it's something that probably belongs in the world we lived in 30 years ago when uh, it was illegal to be gay or, or um, to have gay sex, as uh, the case may be. Uh, a lot of that has changed and people don't understand these things to a, a large degree. But uh, we heard the minister speaking there a moment ago in uh, the doll ahead of Pride Week, along with a, a lot of other TDs. And there were some very positive contributions. Um, the minister, uh, I think, very positive uh, in his utterances about his own sexuality. Uh, a very striking speech, I think, from Keane O'Callaghan, Absolutely, yeah. uh, which we may hear on the programme in the coming days uh, who really was celebrating his sexuality uh, um, but we he- heard from an awful lot of TDs uh, concerned uh, as well about attitudes that belong in a world that existed 30 years ago homophobia and transphobia in particular uh, was uh, of concern but also the violence the type of thing we saw in Navin we spoke about not too long ago Parga, as well and uh, attacks physical attacks and online attacks that people are uh, having to endure yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think you know Callahan's speech in particular um, was really important. I think um, Keen talks about uh, 
kind of the joy you get being part of this community. That's a really, really supportive community. Um, we look out for each other. We have great fun. There's great celebrations. And he, he, he said something in particular that, that resonated with me. He said, not for a second would he change being gay. Um, not for a second. Some of the best experiences he had in his life, some of the best people he's met in his life have been through being involved uh, in our wonderful, diverse uh, community. Um, and I think that was that's a really important message. And I think sometimes we, we talk about the things that need to change, but maybe we need to talk more about the real positives and, and the real celebrations. And this weekend in Dublin, there's going to be a huge pride parade and we're going to all come together and have a big party and have a big celebration. And there, there's a lot uh, of great things that happen in our community. And as I said, there is a real community that looks out for each other and people who go out of their way to support each other. And we become a kind of a family to each other in many ways. Uh, kind of people talk about their chosen family. Um, so there is a lot of, of positives, but as you say, there's always work to be done. It, yeah, is, well, we saw it last weekend project. in Drogheda. Ivan Miladimich was on the programme with us on Monday morning. He was out walking with his husband on Saturday morning. They were taking their dog for a walk. Uh, all sorts of profanities were shouted at them. Um, young fellas, oh, 16, 17, gay bastards, um, this sort of thing, throwing stones. Yeah. They, 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 a big rock, Ivan said, uh, hit him. Uh, his phone was smashed. Uh, his husband's glasses were broken. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't think there was any talking to these kids. Uh, and maybe that's something that was reflected in the doll speeches yesterday about uh, an attitude that belongs 30 years back in time that seems to be coming forward again today. Yeah, there, there definitely seems to be a, a, a pushback. And we see that when we make progress in any area. We make progress and there's a pushback. And there, there are certainly people with, with extreme political views who online and offline are campaigning against LGBT issues. We've seen protests outside libraries where they have LGBT books. And there is there is a uh, this kind of the online hate and an online pushback. And we have seen that. But the other side of it, I think, that's worth teasing out as well is... I think sometimes, particularly if you see this with younger people, sometimes we see what we call internalised homophobia. Um, and I've often heard guys talk about the people who used to bully them in school were the people they bumped into in the gay bar 20 years later. Sometimes we have people who, because of that legacy of homophobia in society, sometimes when they discover that they're, that they're LGBT themselves, sometimes people react to that and almost push it away and, and turn to sometimes bullying other people because of that. Um, and it's this, uh, this kind of this internalized homophobia. Um, and some of the, particularly we see sometimes in, in, in a kind of youth sector, sometimes there is those roots to it. And I think that's why we need to, to change attitudes and celebrate the positives and, and let everybody know that it's, you know, it's okay to be LGBT mm. and that's so why we need good education programs in schools and we need to have positive messages. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult conversation because you're quite often trying to have that conversation with very angry people and if you tell a very angry person the reason they're angry and homophobic is because they're gay, uh, they get all the more angry, don't they? Yeah, it's not always the case, but, but sometimes it's people have an, an internal reaction. And sometimes, I think, if we think about ourselves, if we see something in other people that we don't like about ourselves, sometimes we react negatively to that. And it's, um, so there are, there are those really complicated roots to things. Um, and some of it is just, yeah, is an attitude or a mindset or, or a certain belief. Um, but I think we need, we need to challenge that, particularly when it does harm to people, particularly when, when, when we're seeing the kind of damage and, and the mental health impacts um, that some of the stuff that is said uh, has. And I think in particular, one of the speeches in the door last night was just a disgrace in terms of what was said. Um, and I, 
think it was good to see the minister at the end challenge that um, because I think we need to be really clear and, and calling mm. out some of the very negative things that are said um, while also, I think, celebrating the positives and mm. and creating a better environment for everybody. And as the Minister said, there were a, a, a lot of very questionable speeches made in the Dáil 30 years ago, just one really yesterday. Uh, so that in itself is an improvement. Porik, we leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Porik Rice, Policy and Research Manager with LGBT Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, yesterday, uh, Senator Erin McGreen asked uh, the government uh, for an update on children's therapy, assessment waiting lists, and indeed staff vacancies in County Louth's Children's Disability Network teams, or CDNTs. Uh, the response was quite shocking. In relation to the children's disability services in Louth, I can inform this, the Shanna that their 29.8 whole time equivalent posts allocated for the North Louth um, Children's Disability Network team, of which 8.5 whole time equivalent posts are currently vacant. And that's a significant percent, um, is probably you know, at least 30% of vacancies in the area almost. These vacancies mean that families are experiencing waiting times of between 6 and 18 months depending on the discipline and ongoing demand. Regarding the South Louth area, um, in respect of the same Children Disability Network team, there are 31 whole time equivalent posts allocated, of which 15 are currently vacant. That's a 50% rate of vacancies. This translates in waiting lists up to 18 months for services with additional disciplines also affected. Right, that's Minister of State Sean Fleming who was responding to Senator Aaron McGreen. Uh, a very good morning to you Senator McGreen. Thanks for joining us on the programme. Uh, the, 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 those vacancy rates are quite shocking aren't they? Uh, 30% in North Louth and 50% in South Louth. It's absolutely shocking Michael and I think you know when we see those figures, there is absolutely no surprise when we see when we see such waiting lists, um, and that is that that is the absolute tragedy, the absolute disgrace, and that is the crux of the entire problem. Where we have we have really committed staff members who are who are those people who are working there at the minute. They're overstaffed, are understaffed, overworked, and they're not getting the, the that that clinical or the the staffing support that they should be getting and I think that for, for, for children, for staff it's not working for anybody and for, and for most importantly it's not working for those little children who need the timely and effective um, uh, therapies, assessments and, and support. It's, it's, where's the, where's it's the problem? Where, where, where's the problem? Uh, 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 or to ask it another way, why do people not want to do this work or why do they not want to do it in County Louth? Uh, the positions uh, have been funded, uh, it would seem, uh, but people aren't uh, applying or taking up the jobs. I think it's absolutely. And there, there has been over 600, Euro, 600 staff, staff vacancies across this entire area nationally. They have been approved by, and funded by the government. But this is not an issue of funding. It's not an issue of, of not getting support from the government, as it was in previous times. This is, this is 100% on the staffing. So I suppose from us, from my point of view, over the past two years, what I have been trying to ask and, and push for, for the HSE to start looking at what actually talking to staff members on the ground. Why, why are we finding it so difficult to, to, to send these vacancies? 
have they done everything to 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 bring in more staff? You know, this critical skills op- occupation list, have they expanded that? We, we don't have all the answers of these things. And that's something I've been pushing with the HSC and the department for, near, for over two years. And, and similarly, the same as has the Minister Anne Rabbit. Mm. You know, we, we need to be entice, scoping out what will entice our undergrads to commit to working. And in full staff, staff disability, a, a, a network team, you can imagine the joy, the support, and the, the results and the rewards of having a full team to be able to you know, help the children that are in need um, and, and how rewarding that would be. So there is, it's a really good job, but why aren't the people, people um, applying for these jobs? Are, are, they, are, are they taking jobs in the private sector? They absolutely, absolutely must be. And um, we do have we do have that. And what I would be saying to to the HSE would be that, like, well, right, let's look at the post. Let's let, let's look at the grading. Let's look at the career progression. Something is going wrong there. Is there someone that's coming in on a low grade, not getting access um, to a to a higher a higher grade within in 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 their own in the disability team? Are they moving on to primary care? Let's say are they moving on to some to some other section within the in the agency that has career progression? You know, disability services are hugely important. They're hugely rewarding. You meet you meet wonderful people. Who make incredible grounds when you when you ha- when you see a child who gets the therapies, it's so rewarding. Mm. But when you see a child who is so who has been denied therapies, it's it's probably the worst thing as a parent to see your child regress. Okay, um, and, I, and I and I do. But for me, Michael, um, it's to continue support our minister. Um, it's to continue to support our staff that are currently there mm. and also to push the HSE to actually scope out what can be done, mm. to really speak to the, the current staff. Can the, HSE, can the HSE compete? Is it a, a question of terms and conditions? Are there better terms and conditions in the private sector than the Absolutely, jobs Michael. there are? Absolutely. When you think the terms and conditions, you can, have a, you can have a client load of 600 children. Mm. And you, you might, in the private sector, you know, you might have a lesser, you might be able to give more of yourself to a child. Mm. You get better rewards from a professional standpoint when you're dealing with a child who, in that private sector, you're seeing them, you're seeing them more regular, you're able to, mm. to enjoy um, your work and your profession. So I think what we do, we need to do immediately is actually support the minister in what she was trying to do um, and, and agreed to last year in, in Disability Matters Committee, where, where I was present, is to temporarily use private providers mm. where the CDNT teams are particularly strained. Start using them. Start looking at how we can encourage young people into this role and older people, any people, how we can expand the critical skills occupation list to ensure that we are getting the best from abroad. Because, Michael, this is actually a great country to live in. It's a great, there's, there's great opportunities. Yeah. If we can in, encourage people from abroad to come um, and support our families, to support and get a, a really rewarding job, mm. I think that's where we need to be looking at. Um, and, and that doesn't help a family today, Michael. Um, and the situation is absolutely dire. And 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 you you played you played a clip there from my colleague Minister Sean Fleming. And the vacancies meant that families were experiencing waiting mm. times 
of six and 18 months. That's dreadful, yeah. And if any mm. of us know children, mm. um, and young children in particular, the difference between a six-month-old and an 18-month-old is night and day. The difference between an 18-month-old and a 24-month-old is is huge. Mm. And again, those key, those those learnings, those changes over a, a child in the early years is absolutely critical. Mm. And they need early intervention. They need early support. And I and I will continue support our minister. I've met we've been yeah. meeting with the minister Abbott today. And I will be highlighting this. We have we have critical shortage in County Loud, and it needs clear emphasis. It needs it needs dedicated attention yeah, well, because we have such huge waiting. Yeah, and uh, such huge vacancies. And we are only talking about twenty three, twenty four jobs, um, but obviously that's led to this incredibly. Uh, dreadful situation for the children and for their parents uh, where yeah. they're waiting an inordinate amount of uh, time. And it seems relentless, yeah. Mike, mm. Michael, yeah. you know, the Minister has secured the largest ever budget, has secured funding for 600 posts in this sector mm. and it's now up to the HSE to make sure yeah. that the money that the Minister has provided and this government has provi- yeah. pro- provided is now spent uh, yeah, and, on the children uh, that need uh, it. And, and I mean that's all the government can do is uh, approve the posts provide the funding. Uh, we're seeing what it, uh, Sean, let me say, 30% in North Louth vacancies, 50, uh, 50% uh, in South Louth. Uh, is that similar across the rest of the country? There are vari- various various figures but yes, it's it's there is no full team in the country, right. and, and Michael, mm-hmm. we, we we saw our Irish football team play there this week. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't field half a team to represent your country and to do its best. We can't field half a team for our children who just who really really need it. Okay, um, it's a small amount of jobs. Uh, the money is there for them, uh, and causing this huge problem for so many people. We have to leave it there, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen. Um, by the way, uh, there's a white collie dog missing from Phillipstown White River. This is Toby, nervous of strangers, last seen on the Corliss Road. Contact us if you've come across Toby and we'll put you in touch with the owner. Uh, uh, we had Ellen in touch saying, Michael, I don't care whether they are gay or lesbian. That's their business. But why are they always looking for special treatment with marching and pushing it in people's faces? Thanks, Ellen. I, I think they're looking for equality, Ellen. Uh, and uh, some of uh, the things that we heard Parig mention earlier. Um, we'd uh, another message uh, from somebody. I thought this was very curious, actually. <laughs> I don't know if uh, it was sent tongue-in-cheek or what, but the caller says, why do homophobic people get a hard time just because they are homophobic? It's a phobia. They can't help it. No more than gay people can't help being gay. I, if you, that wasn't tongue in cheek, I think the answer is um, very straightforward. It's uh, because uh, I don't think uh, being gay does anybody else any harm. Being homophobic uh, is uh, very discriminatory uh, and at odds with equality, and we are all equal. Pat in touch saying, Michael, I, I don't live in the UK, but I've been told that the education system there is completely different to here. School children in England don't use school books or work. Books. Teachers plan the following day's lessons. After children go home, they work on preparing the following day's lesson for each child in the class. This includes photocopying reams of worksheets for each child and the children don't have to bring books home. Uh, and they don't do homework. Teachers work long hours and a longer 
entire year than they do here with less holidays. Not surprising that there's a huge turnover of teaching staff and teacher teacher shortages there, says Pat. Well, thank you indeed. Uh, all of that news to me, Pat, but thank you, as uh, I say, uh, for texting us. So if you want to make a comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're listening to us uh, yesterday, uh, you may have heard uh, Paul Reed, uh, the chairperson of uh, the Citizens Assembly on drugs use, talk about uh, the research published uh, from the Health Research Board, which has found that cocaine is now the most common drug that people have a problem with. More people use heroin, it seems, than cocaine, but more people using cocaine need help to deal with uh, the problems uh, that they're experiencing from uh, the drug. Dr Anne-Marie Carew is a research officer at the HRB and on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. What kind of problems do people experience as a result of using cocaine? Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so this report from the Health Research Board published yesterday looks at drug treatment figures over a seven-year period from 2016 through to last year. We saw last year that we had just over 12,000 cases uh, treated for problem drug use in Ireland, which is about a 10% increase compared to previous years. Now, as you said there, uh, one of our key findings was about the number of cocaine cases, which we're continuing to see those numbers increase. In fact, it was the primary issue for one in three cases who entered treatment last year. Um, there has been a considerable increase in cocaine use over the last number of years. In fact, we saw that it was threefold uh, if you look back over, uh, back right back to 2016. And last year, for the very first time, cocaine has become the most common drug across all cases that enter treatment. Um, there's a number of different reasons for this, such as the rise in the use of cocaine in the population, as well as the increase in the provision of specific services to treat cocaine. Now, you mentioned um, about the problems I mean, associated with cocaine. If we look at cocaine, there's actually two different types that we see in Ireland. The main one is powder cocaine that most people will be familiar with. Mm. And it accounted for eight in every 10 cocaine cases. The other one was crack cocaine, which is far less common, um, but it is the other main type that we see. Um, now, the profiles are quite different. So for powder cocaine, you know, the profile in general are males in their 30s and paid employment. And they're likely to be using alcohol as an additional drug alongside um, cocaine. So this combination of polydrug use um, between cocaine and alcohol can be problematic because it can increase the the risks to a person's health and the risk, of, for example, of having an overdose. Mm. In terms of crack cocaine, then, the profile is very different. It tends to be those that are uh, more likely to be unemployed or to be homeless. They're typically older. We're seeing higher rates of women. We're also seeing um, opioids, mainly heroin, being used as an additional drug alongside the crack cocaine. And again, the combination of um, crack cocaine plus uh, heroin use can be um, very problematic. It can be more difficult to treat and there can be more harmful consequences for the person that are using it. For example, the risk of having an overdose is, is increased. 
from the crack cocaine or uh, because you're using heroin along with it? Uh, there would, there's a risk associated for, uh, with using any drug, but when you um, start to use drugs together or alongside each other, you elevate all of those risks. Mm. And what we see in the data, you know, in terms of that polydrug use or that mixing of substances, we found that nearly six in every ten cases that came into treatment last year reported that they were had a problem the use of more than one drug and this number has remained high throughout the last seven years okay. in terms of the polydrug use you know cannabis is the most common additional problem that we saw followed by alcohol cocaine and benzodiazepine benzodiazepines which you know all three mm. were at fairly similar levels okay so crack cocaine is a crystallized form of it, isn't it? And you smoke that and then the powder cocaine is powder that you snort. Generally, yes. That's yeah, generally okay. what we see. All right. And you talked about the health issues. I take it there's a lot of physical health issues, a lot of strain in the heart and other organs from using substances like that. You mentioned there's the prospect of an overdose. But why do people come... Uh, to seek help for cocaine use. Uh, I take it that they're not aware that their heart is under strain or they haven't overdosed. Uh, so are they experiencing other problems in their lives? They can be, and they often are. You know, when people come forward and seek treatment, usually, you know, there's a reason for that. So there has been a consequence in their life, whether it be, you know, that they're... Um, spending a lot of money on drugs or, you know, it has had a refle- uh, an effect on their ability to hold down a job They've or their the relationships yeah. at home yeah. or, yeah. you know, being able to study, for example. Um, so, you know, the fact that people that are coming in and are seeking treatment is really, really positive. Uh, we also saw last year that additional funding was provided for mm. cocaine-specific services. And we see this morning that the Minister with Responsibility for Drugs has announced even more funding for cocaine-specific services across okay. the country. So this mm. is really positive that the help hopefully will be there if people come forward and look mm. for it. It's surprising, uh, to me at least, uh, that more people use heroin uh, than cocaine, but more people using cocaine are looking for help than heroin because I would have thought that heroin was the most uh, addictive of all of the drugs and uh, the most problematic of all of the drugs. It really depends on um, the age groups. So in the data, we looked at the drugs and we looked at the age groups of the, pa- of the cases coming in to seek treatment. And what we found was that different drugs generated varied demand for treatment across those age groups. So if you look at uh, younger people and those that are aged 19 years of age or younger, the main problem for that age group was cannabis. Then for those in their 20s up to the mid-30s, the main problem that we saw was cocaine. And among the older age groups, so 35 and older, it was predominantly opioids or heroin. Okay. Uh, what problems have people got from cannabis? Is it psychosis or paranoia or something else? The problem from cannabis use can be varied, you know, and it can depend on, you know, the amount and the frequency of use. So, you know, it's, um, it's very hard to generalise because it can be different 
depending on the person's own particular circumstances. Okay, we have to leave it there. Our time has run out, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, very interesting stuff uh, from uh, the Health Research Board. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Carew, who's a research officer at uh, the HRB, and that's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwin, and we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.